Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Today's uh, first package is Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10. I'll be reading from the NIV. The page number up there, 665, is from the Bibles at the back on the table. Um, I'll give you a couple of seconds to bring that up. <clears throat> Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim the peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The next passage is Mark 11 verses 1 to 25. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while other pe- others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they will say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Thank you very much, Nick, for reading. Please uh, do keep open uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 and following. That's where we're up to in our series, Servant King, uh, the good news of the gospel of Mark. I sort, of, I sort of started this way last week when I said I sat down and opened the Bible on Monday to prepare the talk, rah, rah. I kind of sat down on Monday, right, to begin or to keep preparing this talk and I opened to Mark 11 and I was like, oh my goodness, Jesus comes into Jerusalem today. And I'm like, it's going too fast. 
a bit like this year. I don't know if you're feeling that this year. Like, I feel like it should be about three weeks, you know, ago. Like, I'm just not quite ready for February the 28th. But here we are um, in the Word of God and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, if you're a note taker and uh, you're, you're keen to know what today is all about, here is like your title for your little notebook. It is Let Jesus Be Jesus. Uh, that's what, you know, we're, I'm kind of calling today, Let Jesus Be Jesus. That's what we're really going to think about. Um, one of the books up on the back table is this book, Jesus, A Short Life by John Dixon. Um, I know a bunch of us are familiar with John Dixon's work. Um, John Dixon is an Australian. Uh, he is, uh, he's an author. He's a pastor. He's an evangelist. He's an apologist. Um, he's a podcaster. Um, up until recently, John Dixon uh, was sort of a pastor of a church. Uh, now he's sort of putting all of his kind of efforts and time into, I guess, continuing to do the work of evangelism. And also, he's um, developed a really great podcast called Undeceptions. Anyone listen to Undeceptions at all? Yeah, a few of us. Um, I can highly recommend it as a, a great... I'm not a huge podcaster. Um, I'm sort of a selective podcaster. But Undeceptions is a great podcast uh, where John um, kind of... His desire is to let the truth out. Um, sort of from behind all the deceptions that the world might have or our own sort of perceptions and deceptions about who, the, the, who Jesus is and the Christian faith. It's, it's a wonderful um, podcast. I can highly recommend checking it out. Um, but one of the things I love about John Dixon, I don't agree with John Dixon on sort of every single thing when it comes to you know, faith and life and ministry and things like that. But one of the things I love about John Dixon is he just his desire with all that he does, particularly his publications and undeceptions, is he just wants to let Jesus be Jesus. He wants to help you and me and anyone who happens to read or listen just kind of take Jesus for who he really is. Um, that's one of the things I really love about what he does. Um, rather than, you know, um, bring all of our baggage and perceptions and assumptions and preferences to Jesus, he just wants to help us let Jesus be Jesus, um, because we all come to Jesus with a bunch of assumptions and preferences and things like this, a bit like this guy, Deepak Chopra. I met Deepak Chopra actually through John Dixon's work. Deepak Chopra, um, he is like the spiritual guru to the stars, right? You know, Hollywood, Los Angeles, this is your guy to go to everything spiritual. Um, in his third book, The Third Jesus, which is what the title of the book is, he kind of paints a picture of who he thinks Jesus is. And guess who Jesus looks like? Deepak Chopra. Very, very similar. Slightly bigger and just a little bit nicer than Deepak, but just a little bit, you know. Um, here's another picture. Um, that's Reg Mombasa on the left-hand side there. He's the guy that designed Mambo and, um, you know, sort of all the clothing and stuff like that. Um, he's got this great image of, you know, the Aussie Jesus. That's like on the right-hand side. And it's, of course, Jesus at the football, and he's doing the miracle of the pies and the beer. How good is that, right? You know, just brings it all out. I'd, I think I'd like to be at that football game. Um, but we Christians as well, right? We paint different pictures of Jesus. So here's another one. Jesus meek and mild, harmless Jesus, just nursing a baby lamb, looking gloriously, you know, I think he's had Botox. His skin looks so nice. Um, not a wrinkle there and the halo. Like, you know, perfect Jesus who just, who just loves us and wants to be our friend. 
And then there's also like theological Jesus, right? Who is, you know, Jesus is only interested in dying for the sins of the world and he really has no other interests at all in the world. That's the other Jesus. Well, sometimes we confuse Jesus a bit with like last week's message, you know, chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, for many nations. And we get this idea, right? Well, Jesus didn't come to to be served, but to serve. And really, Jesus is just all about serving me and my agenda and just affirming what I kind of want to do in the world. We We domesticate Jesus, right? We put Jesus in a box and the box is shaped how we want that box to be kind of shaped. We don't let Jesus be Jesus. We forget sometimes that the thing that makes Jesus sacrifice his giving of his life on an old rugged cross to forgive us our sins and the sins of the world, we forget that what makes that so extraordinary, a sacrifice, is that Jesus had all the authority And yet he was still willing to do that for us. Authority, we're told, chapter 10, verse 32 from last week, that made the crowds around him kind of frightened. And I said last week, right, if your picture of Jesus doesn't include just a little bit of fear, then maybe your picture of Jesus is a little bit blurry or fuzzy. We've got to let Jesus be Jesus. And there are a few passages in the Gospels where this is more necessary or perhaps more unavoidable than Mark chapter 11 and the verses we're looking at this morning. I hope you've got it open in front of you. Jesus, uh, here in this passage, we're looking at rides into Jerusalem with royal acclaim, curses a fig tree so that it withers, he overturns tables and benches in the temple precincts. And so here's my question for us this morning. Are you willing to let Jesus be Jesus? As he is on his terms. Before we actually get to the passage, we will get there eventually, Mark chapter 11. But before we get there, it's really important, I think, to just give you a key piece of background that helps us kind of, you know, get to know Mark 11 really well. Um, It's actually a key, I think, to understanding Jesus in all of his glory throughout all the Gospels. Um, And it's the importance of this, enacted parables, or what some people call prophetic Signs, symbolic actions intended to make a public theological statement, and I expect you to remember that by the end of today. No, um, prophetic signs, or what I prefer, enacted parables. Like the ancient prophets of Israel, Jesus conveyed a lot of his message through what we call enacted parables. He spoke things, right? He said things, but he also communicated things through what he kind of did. Kind of, I imagine it like sort of public theatre in some ways. Just he, just he acted stuff out in front of people to drive home his message. And it's actually a massive part of Jewish background. Um, and I think most modern Christians, myself, and certainly the general public, don't see this or spot it. Let me give you some examples of enacted parables throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Here's like a potted history of enacted parables in the Old Testament, the first big part of our Bible, and then to the New, the, the, the shorter part. Um, Hosea, Hosea, right, was a prophet. He was around 700 years before Jesus came onto planet Earth. He was told, Hosea, you must marry a prostitute. Why? Well, it was an enacted parable. He actually did it, and it was to demonstrate that God was married to Israel, his ancient people, who had prostituted itself to other gods. 
You think about Isaiah, right? Poor old Isaiah. This, this is my, like, who would want to be a prophet, right? Poor old Isaiah. He had to walk around the city of Jerusalem for three years nude. Yes, nude. You look like that's normal. No one's really, like, nude. No clothes. Could you not read it? Jeremiah, part of his message, he wasn't allowed to take a wife, which was really unusual in Jewish culture. But it was a sign of a breach of marriage between, breach of the marriage relationship between God and Israel. Ezekiel, I think Ezekiel, the prophet, drew the shortest straw of all the prophets, right? He had to do a whole bunch of weird things. Um, for a bunch of months, he had to lie on his left-hand side, and then he had to turn over and lie for a couple of years on his right-hand side. Who'd want to be a prophet? Um, but he also had to build, right, a little model of the city of Jerusalem in the public square while everyone was watching it, and then he had to attack the model that he'd made, right? Imagine that. He's in the public square, makes this model, and he's having war games with this model. Um, and he'd go, why? And he wasn't allowed to say anything. He wasn't allowed to go, this is why I'm attacking the model that I made. You know, it's a bit, I don't know, it's a bit like Renee, an architect. She builds this beautiful structure that she's going to build one day or get someone to build, and she just attacks it. Imagine that. She does nothing. We're going, she's a bit weird. All right, she's a bit weird. The point was clear, though. Jerusalem would fall. And that was the message that Ezekiel was going to convey. Again, Ezekiel, I mean, he really did draw the short straw. Again, he's in the public square. Everyone's watching. And he had to cook bread over an open fire with poo. And you all look at me and go, yeah, it's, I do that all the time. You know, it's normal. He had to do it with poo. It's right there in the text because the bread, he had to make bread that was defiled. Everyone's watching the holy prophet eat defiled bread, ritually unclean bread, a symbol that God's people were defiled, they were sinful. You move to the New Testament, right? Here we are, into the New Testament. John the Baptist turns up um, and he calls everyone out to the Jordan River. They had to go into the Jordan. Now there were plenty of other rivers and streams and baths in Jerusalem and the area. Why the Jordan? Well, that's where Israel began their journey to the promised land after being rescued and redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. And so here is John calling people out to the Jordan again for a fresh start. Um, Agabus in the year AD 57, read about Agabus in Acts chapter 21. The Apostle Paul's preaching and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And instead of just telling Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested and put in jail, what does Agabus do? Anyone know what Agabus did? Walks up to Paul. I don't know, have you got a belt on, brother? No, I'm going to do it. But he walks up to, walks up to Paul, just whips his belt off and ties himself up in it and said, the person who owns this belt will be tied up. He didn't say anything. He just enacted it. My point is, right, this was such a thing in Jewish culture and thinking of, and thinking of the prophets that we've got to look at Jesus through this kind of lens. Otherwise, we'll miss what's kind of going on. We'll miss a great deal of what Jesus was trying to do and communicate. Jesus selected 12 apostles, right? Not 11, not 13. Why? The whole people of God began with 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is saying, through these 12, my new people will start. Jesus dined with tax collectors and sinners, not just because he was a left-wing liberal lefty who loved everybody and, you know, like... It was an acted parable of God's invitation to his table. 
welcoming sinners to join his table, offering fellowship and love and forgiveness and rest. Jesus was acting out his message. He told the disciples, right, when they went preaching from village to village, um, if people rejected the message of the disciples, what were they to do? They were to shake the dust off their sandals, not because they were rude, but it was a way of demonstrating, you know, if you want nothing to do with Jesus, well, we're not going to carry even the dust on of your town as we go. And the Last Supper, which we're about to celebrate once I ever finish talking, um, we have bread and we have juice, right? The wine and, and, and the juice, it's, a, it's, it's an, an enacted thing that we do every week. Remembering and involving ourselves, participating in the life and the death of Jesus as an acceptance of forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life. I say all this before we even open Mark 11 because Mark 11 has three enacted parables in it in a row. And if we don't interpret what's going on here in light of this strong Jewish background, we won't actually let Jesus be Jesus. And so the first of the enacted parables is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And if you've been tempted because I've been going on for so long to close your Bible, open it. Mark chapter 11 and verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphagay and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, we read this, right, and we go, wow, it just sounds like Mark liked a whole bunch of places and wanted to note them down. Um, you know, Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Bethphagay, Bethany, etc. But for the Jews, right, these places are loaded with, like, sacred geography, the Mount of Olives is the great messianic mountain because passages like the book of Zechariah say that God himself will appear on the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem, of course, is the holy city. Bethany is the gateway to the holy city. And when I was small, um, much smaller than I am now, we would... Um, my family, I kind of came from Melbourne. I was born in Melbourne and we, had lot, we moved to Adelaide. Lots of families still back in Melbourne. So we'd make that drive, right, from Adelaide to Melbourne pretty regularly to visit family and friends. We'd leave Adelaide just at the right time. So we got to Keith for morning tea, right? We got to Keith. Here's a, I think there's a picture coming up. Whoop, no, not yet. Go back, go back, go back. Um, that's Keith. Yeah, look at that. Um, we get to Keith, right, and as we drive past the welcome to Keith sign, I'd get this tingle in my spine because I knew the bakery was close and I was going to get a sausage roll with sauce and a farmer's union iced coffee, right? And I'd even wind down the window and go, you know, smell that, you know, it was so good. There was so much anticipation. But nothing compares, right, to arriving in Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives, making your way up through Bethany, the gateway, you know, through Beth the gate or the top of the Mount of Olives, and you'd look west and see that, not Keith, extraordinary view of the city of Jerusalem. And in the middle of that city, this is the picture, this is not my picture, right, but picture of this is looking from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, where, you know, you'd see the huge temple precinct right in the middle. It's not there. The Romans destroyed that a bunch of decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, but, where, you know, that golden dome there is where the temple kind of used to stand. And you'd see the temple, this huge complex, heaps bigger than Adelaide Oval, right? Huge thing. 
center of Jewish life, this great architectural wonder of the world. Everything about this opening few paragraph of Mark 11 is pregnant with expectation. It's electric, it's like me going to Keith, you know, like it's huge, maybe bigger than that. And Jesus amps it up even more because he decides to say to, he says to his disciples, now go and get me this colt. Whole thing looks like a setup, right? Not just a miracle. It looks like Jesus has arranged with someone in the little town up the road to grab the colt and bring it to Jesus the master. But he wants this colt so that he can ride down this side of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and into the temple precinct. Why? Well, because Zechariah the prophet said this. Zechariah 9, we had it read before. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is acting out this very famous prophecy of the king's entry into Jerusalem. The crowds, they know exactly what's going on. Chapter 11, verse 8, many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in highest heaven. I mean, they're shouting. This is the moment when Jesus goes public with the claim that he is in fact the great long-awaited descendant of David who will rule on God's eternal throne forever. He doesn't need to say it. I mean, we say things like, why didn't he just say, I'm the king who should sit on the throne eternally? It's a very modern way of thinking. Why didn't he just say it? He didn't need to say anything. He just needed to jump on a colt right into Jerusalem and everyone knew what was going on. You see? And that's why instantly their cloaks are off. They're making a red carpet. They're singing, Alleluia, Hosanna, God saves. He's come to rescue us. Here's the one who will rule from the river to the ends of the earth. And legally speaking, brothers and sisters, this is probably the cause of the Roman charge against Jesus, the cause of this execution from a legal Roman kind of perspective. Because this is as close as Jesus gets to ever publicly announcing that he indeed is the king and that his rule will extend from the river, from the river Jordan, to the ends of the earth, even to Adelaide. And includes Rome. And he weren't allowed to do that. Weren't allowed to kind of challenge Rome. So you can imagine, right, we'll get there eventually as we get to Easter, but you know, the, the Jewish high priests kind of knock on Pilate's door Oh, guess what, uh, Pilate? This uh, that Jesus, he's claiming to be a king bigger than Caesar. And that alone explains, right, the sign above Jesus' head. I think there's a picture. There you go. They nailed to his cross on Golgotha, Jesus of Nazareth, king of Jews, so he claimed. Mark 11, verse 11. It's kind of anticlimactic, but also a little ominous. Have a look. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He's ridden the colt in, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. With all this like pregnant expectation, electric buildup, Jesus enters the temple on the colt and says nothing. Kind of does nothing. He wanders around, 
looks at everything. You've got to wonder what the crowds are thinking, right, when he turned up. You know, what's, what's next? What's he going to do? You know, over there, there were some priests doing some sacrifices. And on the other side, there was a Pharisee teaching a group of people the traditions of the elders and the scribes. And over there were the money changers and a few doves floating around trying to, you know, wrangle them and things like that. Something ominous, though, in the words of verse 11, right? He looked around at everything. You're like a general inspecting his troops the night before battle, like a king examining his palace. He looked around at everything. But then he turns around and just leaves the way that he came. Back up the Mount of Olives, over the top, down the other side, through Beth into Bethany. That ominous tone carries over into the next two enacted parables. And these two are especially confronting, not only for Rome, but for God's people. Uh, So the cursing of the fig tree, our second enacted parable. Have a look at verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now this, this is a bit of a weird story, right? From a modern perspective. I mean, Jesus is talking to plants. You notice that? He's talking to plants. A little while ago, Prince Charles was referred to as one who talks to plants. And that, I think, just underlines the weirdness of the point, right? Um, it could be, you could read this as spiteful, right? You know, Jesus getting angry with a plant, you know, right? That could be just spiteful. Could be completely irrational. I mean, it's March back then. And, it's, and everyone knows that frigs don't fruit for another kind of couple of months into May and June. Could be totally irrational. That would be just my ignorant modern Western reading of the situation. That would be akin to like a kid in English class, right, who doesn't get Shakespeare and says, oh, sir, Shakespeare's stupid. It happens, right? An English teacher hears that and says, oh, yes, Simon, thanks for that, idiot. You know, (laughs) that was me in English class, right? There are three keys to understanding um, this kind of this, this story, this, this enacted parable, I think are really helpful. Three keys. I've kind of summarised them on the screen. The first one, um, this fig tree kind of cursing incident falls between two obvious enacted parables. Um, the entry into Jerusalem and the overturning of the tables in the temple. Um, there's, there's no way that this is like a crazy, irrational, spiteful Jesus. This is deliberate of Jesus doing this. It's a piece of theatre. The second key, I don't know if you noticed how Mark tells the story in two parts as it was read out before, but verses 12 to 14, Jesus tells us about the cursing of the fig tree and then you get the temple incident and then on the other side of the temple incident you hear uh, that you find out that the tree actually did wither. Um, so it sort of comes in two parts. It's an enacted parable in itself, right? It's, it's one of the enacted parables, the fig tree cursing, but it bookends the third you know, enacted parable, the, the temple cleansing. That's the intro and then the explanation of the overturning of the tables. Um, And unless you spot that sort of particular deliberate device that Mark uses, um, we'll just be like me in class saying, you know, Shakespeare's stupid. Um, We've got to see that. And the third key is, right, is, is understanding that this enacted parable, that the fig tree, the picture of a fig tree, 
was used by many of the Old Testament prophets in their preaching against the temple priests, the scribes, and the teachers of the law of their day. It was well known. Um, so if you're turning your Bibles to Micah chapter 7 back in the Old Testament, uh, Micah, again, 700 years before Jesus, um, said these words. Uh, what misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The rulers demand gifts. The judges accept bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. Centuries before Jesus, here's this picture of you know, desiring figs, but there being no figs, no fruit, because of the devious acts of the leaders of God's people. Or Jeremiah chapter 8, let me just read two verses from Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 10 and 13. Um, the, the prophet Jeremiah uses the picture of these figs as a picture of judgment on the leaders of Israel. This is so important. Verse chapter 8 of Jeremiah. Therefore I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners. From the least of the greatest, hear this, all are greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. And then verse 13, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. You see the language of fig trees and its connection to the leaders of God's people and the corruption and the deceit and the lack of fruit. And so Jesus wakes up on the morning after verse 12 in Bethany with every intention of showing his disciples the meaning of what he's about to do in the temple. The whole thing is theater. You know, he announces, I'm hungry. The master's hungry, but we've just had breakfast. How can he still be hungry? Surely he's full. He goes looking for a fig tree and everyone knows it's two months before the summer crop is due. He arrives at a fig tree. His disciples kind of catch up and just like Micah, he finds what? Nothing. Which suits his purposes fine. And just like Jeremiah, he pronounces a curse that causes it to wither. It's a pretty odd story, right? And yes, yes, brothers and sisters, a fig tree was harmed in the making of this scene. Um, but so what? Um, here's a picture of a guy. That's the guy at the top left. It's um, Peter Singer, famous, infamous, depending on which angle you look at, um, Australian ethicist um, working overseas. He goes to town on Jesus with this particular story. He, like he says, this is proof that Jesus has completely lost the plot by Mark chapter 11. And worse than that, Peter Singer goes, and Jesus is anti-environmental. You know, he kills a fig tree. But seriously, right? If it's okay, right, for Peter Singer to chop down trees to publish books, and if it's okay for me to go to Chanel's in Prospect and buy a tomato and kill that for my sandwich, is it not okay for the Son of God on the sacred mountain to wither a fig tree as a prophetic sign of doom? You're like Ezekiel building the picture, like the little model of Jerusalem and playing war games with it. Jesus is not being irrational. Jesus is not being violent. Jesus is not an anti-environmentalist. He's enacting a parable of judgment. 
We've got to let Jesus be Jesus. And we've got to hold all this in mind as we turn to the third and most dramatic enacted parable. Point three, taking on the temple. Remember, Jesus has already inspected everything. He's been there the night before. He's looked around. He's seen everything. And he's thought exactly about what he will do when he gets to the temple the next day. Mark 11, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is all set in the temple at Passover time. And in Jerusalem at Passover time, the population quadruples. It's huge. Families, right, who made it to Jerusalem for Passover were required to make a sacrifice. But here's the problem, right? Um, Do you carry your little lamb for sacrifice all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem? It's like a week's walk from there. And you go, sounds pretty challenging, right? I've got to carry this restless little lamb with me all the way. Maybe that would be too hard. The priests, right, they had a solution in the temple court. We'll sell you lambs. You know, you don't have to BYO your lamb. We've got one for you. We'll sell you a lamb. You can trust us. Good product. And, of course, there was a huge markup for the service, yeah? It's like when you go to Adelaide Oval for the football to watch Richmond win all the time. You know, whenever I go to Adelaide Oval, right, you know, you face this if you haven't packed your own food, yeah? You know what happens? You spend $10 on a bottle of water and 20 bucks on a dodgy burger if you go there without your food. Not me. Not me. I pack a cheese and bacon roll from Prospect Foodland, you know? And if, I've got the, if I can find the lid for the thermos, I'll take the thermos with me as well, like, you know, to avoid that. You see my point. When you're at Passover, um, you're at the mercy of the priestly price. And Jesus is outraged and he sends them all packing. The money changes in verse 15. They had a different role. Um, At Passover, when you come to the temple, you had to pay what they call a temple tax. It was part of the system. The catch was, right, you couldn't use your ordinary Roman currency. You had to use the shekel of Tyre, um, which was the currency of the temple. Why? Because it was known to be the most purest silver in all of the world. Never mind the fact that it had like a pagan god stamped on the back of it, but it was considered that it was pure. So you had to exchange your Roman cash for your temple cash. And of course, there was like a little fee involved and it was open to abuse. You know, have you ever changed money? When we used to travel overseas, you know, those days, you know, you'd go somewhere and, you know, when we didn't have all the cards that work all over the place, you'd have to go and change your Aussie dollars for US dollars and you change it and you've got in your mind, okay, I'm going to get this much and then you get like half that back. You go, where's it all gone? Oh, the fee. That's right. You know, like that's what happens. Yeah, it was a fee. But there was extortion involved. We're told that in verse 15, Jesus overturned the benches of those selling doves. Doves were sold to the poor who couldn't afford to buy lamb. That's provision was made in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7, that if you were poor, if you couldn't afford lamb, you were well and truly fine to buy a dove. The Lord was really happy with that. And Jesus goes for their benches. He doesn't go for their tables. Why? Because these priests are profiteering from the poor, abusing their position, abusing their power. Jesus won't have it. 
And in verse 16, have a look at that. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. I have no idea how Jesus stopped people carrying stuff into the temple courts. Because you've got to remember, right, this is more like Central Market on a Saturday, not Coles at 9, 8pm on a Monday night. Like there's people everywhere. But perhaps chapter 10, verse 32 of Mark is the key, right? Most people were afraid of Jesus. So if Jesus said, don't take anything through these temple courts, I'm thinking people said, okay, you know, like we won't. And at once he had everyone's attention. So no doubt he did. He launched us into this speech, quoting Isaiah 56, verse verse 17. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Which is not far off, right? Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 10, in his fig tree passage, where we read, all are greedy, prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. It's so important to realize here that Jesus hasn't just like interrupted a church service with a word of inspiration. This is huge. There were 15,000 priests on roster in the temple. 15,000 priests. And he's just called them all a pack of thieves and a bunch of crooks for deceiving and extorting the poor. And so he overturns it all, not in uncontrolled anger, but in a deliberate sign of doom and judgment. God will overturn this whole system. And the priests got the point. Have a look at verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And friends, the very next morning, they would observe that the fig tree had withered. By the end of that week, Jesus will be crucified for the sins of the world. Within 40 years, the temple that stood in Jerusalem would be razed to the ground, gone, And there will be no more priestly service. Priests, gone. If you've ever met someone with the name Cohen, it's just that person is descended from the priest. And guess what? Since the the temple was destroyed, since Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world, they've had nothing to do. Jesus' death on the cross looked to the priest like the end of a dangerous opponent. We've got him. He's gone. But in truth, this was God's way of fulfilling the temple service with one great act of atonement, once for all for the sins of the world through Jesus. And through Jesus' resurrection, which happened just a few days later, God established the kingdom he'd promised forever and guaranteed that all that Jesus opposed on earth would be opposed in heaven for eternity. Phony religion exploitation of the poor, abuse of power, gone forever. I hope you can see that Mark chapter 11 is more than just a bunch of three beautiful, pristine, enacted parables that Jesus pulled off really well. But I hope you can see that this is a picture of Jesus Enduring majesty and authority and beauty and power and his judgment. Are you willing to let Jesus be Jesus? I wasn't just the kid in English class who said Shakespeare was stupid, but I was that. I was also the kid in math class who said algebra, 
you'll never get to, you'll never, you'll never need algebra. Again, the teacher would go, thanks, Simon, you know, idiot. Yeah, I was also the Sunday school kid who thought Jesus was stupid. I was in Sunday school for years and I was just like, he's an idiot. And then secondary school, I went to a Catholic secondary school where Jesus was at times clearly presented and I would just go, idiot, stupid, loser. No one would follow him. You know why? Jesus didn't fit my preferences. Jesus didn't fit my limited understanding. The problem for me, I thought Jesus is the problem, but I'm, I'm not the problem. He, he was the problem. And even smart Peter, like Peter, people like Peter Singer can make exactly the same mistake that I did, unwilling to consider that may be more to Jesus than meets the eye. Unwilling to contemplate that Jesus might be smarter, Jesus might be more complex, Jesus might be more formidable, Jesus might be more beautiful than we'd ever thought. Because I was really expert at projecting my own preferences and ignorance and assumptions onto Jesus, rather than letting Jesus be Jesus. Happens in churches as well, right? There are some churches who feel like they can get away with all manner of abuses of power, exploitation of the poor, phony, fake religion. And if this passage teaches us anything today, brothers and sisters, it teaches us that there's no hiding behind Jesus is my mate, Jesus is my servant. You can't justify that. The passage teaches us that the one who is willing to give up his life for us He's also the judge of everything that is opposed to God's purposes and his kingdom. He can and will overthrow phony religion, abuse of power, and exploitation of the poor. I ask us all this morning to let Jesus be Jesus. Should we pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... uh, the life and the words and the deeds of Jesus recorded for us here in the Gospel of Mark. Our Father, we recognise that when we see Jesus um, enacting these parables, speaking to us in this way, we, we see your heart, Father. Father, a heart that is opposed to the abuse of power, a heart that's opposed to phony religion, a heart that is against the exploitation of the poor. On the flip side, Father, we see your heart revealed in your Son, the Lord Jesus, a heart that welcomes sinners, welcomes people from all nations, and ultimately a heart willing to lay down your life for sinners like us. For the by your Spirit, we pray and plead that you would make us more like Jesus. Father, to hold together truth and love and to bear fruit for your glory, our joy and the good of our neighbour. And Father, help us, we pray, as we go into this week to let Jesus be Jesus, to continue to listen to him. And Father, examine perhaps the parts of our lives where we've let our own assumptions or preferences take over the real Jesus. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, 
More information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.